Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Everyone and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the College Football Writer with the Associated Press. We are starting conference previews this week with the season about a month and a half away. First up is the ACC. My guest will be David Hale of ESPN. Nobody does a more thorough job of covering the conference than him. We'll talk about Florida State's chances of a bounce back, what new coach has the toughest job, and what to make of the unpredictable Coastal Division, and we'll talk a little bit about Clemson, too. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us at Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe if you're so inclined. Give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast to do the ACC preview, and this has become a tradition like no other. Um, I think this is like the third year you've done this, David Hale. David Hale is also the college football writer I am most likely to agree with. So it was another reason why I bring him on, because if I agree with him, he must be smart. Um, <laughs> thanks for doing this, Dave. Dave is also coming from ACC Media Days, so really appropriate place to be doing the ACC preview. I, I feel good about all of this. and uh, I, I, you know, of course, applaud your media consumption or production in this case of, of only people that you agree with. That's that's, that's our mindset as a society. I, I think we should continue with that. <laughs> yeah, it's working out pretty well, I think. I mean, I, yeah, think, I yeah. think it's leading us to a very good place here in the United States of America. <laughs> On to the ACC. So, um, so this Clemson team, pretty good, huh? I have heard a few good things. I mean, some people are cautiously optimistic they might be okay this year, maybe a bowl team. I'm not sure. Not they're, I went through to do my all-ACC ballot, uh, and... It's a set, the offense is just Clemson's offense, pretty much. There's not, I mean, you you could pretty much make a case outside of tight end that every offensive position, the best player in the ACC is on Clemson's roster. Uh, so that's starting point A. There is a bunch of turnover on defense. There's no question that it's not an easy job to replace a defensive line as talented as the one that they had, as veteran as the one that they had. I think it's sort of been underreported the losses at linebacker where Kendall Joseph was a three-year starter and, and a really productive guy. Trey Lamar, I thought, was one of the uh, top linebackers in the league last year, and, and I think they were a little surprised that he left for the NFL early. Um, and then Trayvon Mullen, who was an excellent player in the secondary that is gone too. You look at all those losses and you say, boy, the defense has to take a step back. Uh, then you look at the Brent Venables history at Clemson and you look at you know, their sack numbers and their TFL numbers year after year after year. It's top five nationally, first nationally in a lot of years. And they've been replacing Grady Jarrett and Vic Beasley and Shaq Lawson all of these times too. So this might be a marginally bigger job than past years, but there's nothing historically that would suggest that Brent Venables isn't capable of doing it. And of course, the way they've been recruiting, I mean, they're going to put in K.J. Henry and Xavier Thomas and these guys who were five-star blue-chip recruits, and they're just going to, you know, I don't know if they'll be quite Christian Wilkins and Cleland Farrell, but they're going to be pretty good. So, give me. I don't want to spend too much time on Clemson because everybody knows how great they are, and there's only so many ways you can tell people how great they are. Though you did a good job. That was a good. That that was a nice. You, I was. The funny thing I was going to tell. I was going to. The question was going to be. Give me an interesting way to tell me how great Clemson is, and telling me that every team on the off, every every player on the offense could be all ACC is a perfect way to do that. Let's just say this. Let's wrap up Clemson on this. You look at Clemson's schedule. Where is the one loss? I, I don't know if they will lose, but let's. But they have lost. They've lost games in the past. They lost to Syracuse a couple of years ago. They lost to Pitt and won a national championship. Teams occasionally lay an egg. They almost lost to Syracuse last year after a weird week with Kelly Bryant leaving. So if I said to you, 
you have to pick them to lose one game. They'll probably still make the playoff and win the conference, but you have to pick them to lose one game. Where is that one game? It is. I mean, that's a hard question to answer because you look at the schedule and it's like, I don't know. Syracuse would seem to be the most obvious answer because, of course, Clemson did lose at the Dome two years ago when Syracuse was not a good team. And they came awfully close to losing in Death Valley last year when Syracuse was a good team. Of course, the caveat to that is Clemson didn't have its starting quarterback for the second half of either of those games. And they were both, you know, games where Clemson probably shot itself in the foot more. But they Clemson has had some issues against tempo offenses. Dino Babers does seem to have some magic against uh, Clemson. So I guess if you have to make a case, that's probably the one you point to. I mean, I, I'd love to say there's some other trap game on the schedule, and, and maybe Florida State's offensive line takes this huge step forward, and they've certainly got a defense that, that could make life a little bit difficult for Clemson, but I mean, look, you look back last year and you look at Clemson winning by 50 against Florida State, it's hard to hard to make that real serious case for it this year. Who is the second? We're going to try, just the listeners know, we're going to try to hit every team, even you, North Carolina State fans. We are going to hit your team. I know in the past we have slated your team, but we're going to hit right, your we're, team. We're going to have to hit pause so that I can look up some facts about NC State so that we can talk about them. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> there you go. That will make them feel great. Um <laughs> But we're going to do it. We're going to have to, not going to necessarily just go, hey, talk about this team, talk about that team, because I know you love talk about questions. I love talk about In questions. In fact, that would be really cool. I should just do that. Could you talk about <laughs> um, – but we're going to try to do it in somewhat of a creative way. So here is the, the, the next question is the second best team, not in the ACC overall, but the second best team in the Atlantic is? I am probably – the default answer again is Syracuse and there is a lot to like on Syracuse. That defensive line is really, really talented. Um, Alton Robinson is, I think, you know, and Kendall Coleman to a slightly lesser degree, two of the better pass rushers in the country at this point, let alone the ACC. Uh, They're young in the back end, but a lot of guys got a lot of playing time last year. I think they were a bit boomer bust last year. They could be better and more consistent this year. They've got weapons on offense. Of course, the Dino Babers tempo makes things interesting. I know they're super high on Tommy DeVito, who replaces Eric Dungey at quarterback. I think it speaks highly to where they think he is, that he's the representative at media days here. I mean, that that you know says something about what they think of that guy's leadership skills on offense that they would bring him to this event. So. I, I guess the default answer is Syracuse, but the team that intrigues me probably the most is Wake Forest. And I might be the only person going out on this limb at this point, but I start looking at Wake's overall setup, their roster and their depth chart, and they're not super deep. But the thing that Wake Forest has going for them is they're not bad anywhere. They're they're not elite anywhere, but they're not bad anywhere. And being not bad anywhere in that division might be the key to being the second best team because you go beyond Syracuse and Wake and you start looking at the other teams and there's just massive, massive black holes in certain areas where you say, I don't know how they address these questions. Wake is, you know, offensively, they're in really good shape at quarterback. They're in really good shape at receiver, at running back. They've got some veterans on the offensive line. The defense struggled the first half of last year, but they made a, a change of coordinator and saw marked improvement towards the end of the season. I think there's a lot to like with Wake. I don't. I wouldn't say Wake's challenging Clemson for the division, but if you say, all right, when it all shakes out at the end of the year, who's the team that's right behind Clemson on the in the standings? I think there's a case to be made that it's Wake Forest. What's the team or teams that you look in that side of the division and think, boy, really worried that this could be a disappointing year, this could be a big step back year, or just a, a worse year than last year? Well, look, last year was Boston College's window, in my opinion. Boy, wasn't they it? Had, boy, boy, oh talent. boy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had the talent. They had the talent. And to finish with another seven-win season, I think there was an immense amount of disappointment, uh, both within the administration and within the fan base at B.C., they returned some real talented guy. I mean, if you got AJ Dillon, you got a chance. But they lost a lot on the back end of their defense. The they lost some really good pass rushers on their front on their defensive front. They lost a first rounder off of their offensive line. It's just 
last year I felt like the window. I mean, would it shock me if they're seven and five again? That seems to be the the number that they come up with year after year after year. But it wouldn't exactly shock me if that goes in the other direction and you're looking at like a five win team this year. And if that's the case, I think there's going to be that frustration from last year is going to boil over into something a little more significant this time around. Yeah, I'll follow it up with that. I think the one spot in the ACC where I believe you clearly have a coach on the hot seat is is Boston College. I, you know, I think they gave Adazio a short extension last year. Um, and I think they did that probably a little bit begrudgingly. Yeah. Adazio, listen, there is no place in the ACC where you are at quite as much of a disadvantage as, as far as facilities. I think that's fair to say. You've been to more of the ACC spots and more often than I probably have. So it's a tough job. There's no doubt it's a tough job. But again, like you know, seven wins every year, and you're really set up to have a breakthrough season, and you have seven wins again, and I know the quarterback gets hurt. I just think that there's a relatively new AD there, and I suspect everybody's maybe looking around thinking change might be not a bad idea. you got to prove it to me, and if he slides back. Is there anybody aside from Adazio I'm missing that would be sort of a hot seat coach? I don't – I mean, I guess you can make the case for Willie Taggart because I think let, if let's they miss st- a Let's game stay again, there. Let, yeah, let's stay there and just and get into Florida State. Yeah, so look, if, if Florida State misses a bowl game again, it's going to be hard to stay enthusiastic about the future under Willie Taggart. And I know the administration there has gone out of their way to throw Jimbo Fisher under the bus for all of the problems and say, this is the, this is the cards that we're, we were dealt because Jimbo checked out on us and poor Willie Taggart is left to pick up the pieces and try and make something of it. Now, I watched enough Florida State games last year to know that some of that is true. But a lot of it is also that the coaching staff, the hires that Willie Taggart made last year, there were some bad ones. And that coaching staff looked utterly overwhelmed at times. They had no answers. They And not just like, oh, the offensive line is bad, so we don't really know how we're going to deal with that. I mean, just getting personnel on and off the field. The special teams were an absolute train wreck last year. There's no excuse for that at a place like Florida State. So to me, the pressure is on Willie Taggart, not necessarily to win big this year, not to beat Clemson this year. I think that's asking way too much of a, a talent-deficient program in certain areas. But that's got to be a team that gets to the at least the seven or eight win margin to – make the good case like, okay, we're headed in the right direction. Florida State should be measured by trend lines at this point because they're not close to being a playoff team. But you got to show that you are trending and, and in the right direction and doing it at a fairly high clip, that you're not just kind of sitting around and we'll pick up a win here and there each year, and in five years we'll be back to the 10-to-win margin. I, I just You can't do that. It's got to be bigger strides than that. And defensively, they've got the personnel to do it. Offensively, I'm just not sure. I don't know how you take – I've looked at the history recently of offensive lines that were as bad as theirs, and there's just not an example of a team that completely turns it around in one year. When you have an O-line that bad, it takes time to fix. And so, you know, (laughs) James Blackman, I don't know if he survives behind an offensive line. It's not that good. Cam Akers, this is a number I tweeted out. The other day, it was just astonishing to me. In the last, uh, I think since 2012, I went back to, it was like 610 power five running backs that had at least 150 carries. None averaged less yards before contact than Cam Akers did last year. Yeah. That's, you can't, and Cam Akers is an exceptionally good runner. So I don't know. I don't know how you turn that around in a year. And I think, again, if they're five and seven at the end of the year, that's going to be a tough call about Willie Taggart. Yeah, as someone who wrote one of those stories where the administration sort of threw Jimbo under the bus, so I tried to be a little more measured and not give voice to, to people who didn't want to put their names on things. But nonetheless, and listen, I came away thinking somewhat where you are too. You know what? I mean, I think I think he got dealt a tough hand. I think there's a lot going on in that program that he's trying to fix. I completely agree that he made a lot of bad hires, but I, I also think there's a very much an acknowledgement of mistakes that were made, which is good. Now, listen, the first, the first step is admitting it, uh, and Taggart does have a history of 
walking into places and saying, okay, I'm, this is not going the way I'm supposed to, it's supposed to go. I need to change this. I need to change that. And the simple fact that he made some of those changes relatively quickly is probably good. There is a thought to the idea that he got in there. They were so far behind on recruiting. He sort of had to throw together a staff. All that's well and good. They were completely disorganized and disinterested through a lot of the year, and that falls on Taggart. I think the interesting math will be the program is having some the, the athletic department in general is is hit a bit of a rough patch financially. Yeah. So the idea of buying out, and I think it's I, I could be wrong on the math here because I'm not that great at reading contracts. I think it's 17 million they would have to pay Taggart after if they fired him after this season. If you got a different number, that's fine. But I think I came up with seventeen million. Yeah, um, that sounds about right. And I had, you know, somebody was talking to me the other day and saying, "Well, you know, Carolina can buy out Larry Fedora for thirteen or fourteen. Certainly, Florida State can buy out Taggart for sixteen or seventeen. And I said, I, you know, the the things that are happening in that athletics department right now and where they are financially, I'm not sure that's the case. Well, right. But then it'd be, the the math becomes: if we don't fire him, we're not getting the ticket sales fall off even right. more and then so it becomes in our best interest like i say when we start jotting it down on a napkin the numbers actually work out that it's better to spend the 17 million have that be the sunk cost than to go into 2020 with ticket sales dropping off even more season ticket sales dropping off even more and that's even more money and now we could be looking at into 2021 before we get our financial house together but i i agree with you i think the financial piece of it gives him a little cover maybe not as much as you know he would not like or need cuz there's there's other ways to do that math but i also think it's it's basically just about trajectory if he can show we are two wins better than we were last year and oh boy look at how much more competitive we were against clemson that probably is enough if they can just show yeah. that they're organized and making steps forward but what would be scary is if it, if they're 5 and 7 or 4 and 8 and again i don't see that i feel like the schedule is manageable enough and that side of the conference, other than Clemson, they can legitimately beat everybody. They could also lose to just about anybody, but I think they could beat anybody on that side of the conference. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I'd agree. And I think if I was a betting man, I would say that they'll get to seven wins and things will be at least calm there. But again, when you have not signed a quarterback in two years in your recruiting classes and you've got an offensive line that's as brutal as what they had last year. That's what Florida State, you can make the argument, is the second or third most talented roster in the ACC still. It's just where there's not talent, there is no talent. And that's really the biggest issue for, for Willie to fix. And, and to your point, not just financially, but we know how recruiting goes. If they have another bad year and you keep the coaching staff in place, how much negative recruiting happens, how many more cycles are you set back for because you can't find a quarterback, because you can't get the talent there that you need to be competitive with Clemson. So um, I, I agree. Florida State's in a very interesting position. And, boy, if they end up in like that 6-6 six and six range, there's going to be some tough calls made. All right. I, I didn't want to say just talk about, but I do realize that you know, North Carolina State doesn't really – and it is, it's always North Carolina State. It's always North Carolina State to get you in trouble on these ACC previews. But they don't fit into any of the categories because I'm looking at, like, the new coach category, the breakout team category, the which coach would you rather have, the who's going to step back. And North Carolina State looks – I mean, it, my guess is they take a little bit of a step back. And you talk about coaches who have done a good job like uh, – well – you mentioned Adazio where he sort of missed a window for a breakout season. I don't want to put Doran in that same class because the last couple of years, North Carolina State's won nine games each year, and they've been in the mix for even bigger things. They've sent a bunch of guys to the NFL. They'd certainly seem built right now to continue a pretty good level of success, but there also is a I don't know. I look at North Carolina State and feel like they missed a window of opportunity too. Maybe not quite to the to the dramatic extent that BC did, but I do sense that they may have missed a window here to do a little more than just nine wins. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think the big difference between BC and NC State is that somebody comes around and opens the window at NC State a little more routinely than they do at BC, I guess. But 
you're not wrong, but one, you know, one of the things that I did this offseason was I, I took a look back at historical recruiting over like a 10-year window. And you know, the big takeaway that I had from it is, particularly in the ACC, your, your, your recruiting niche is your recruiting niche. Like you don't, coaching changes, good seasons, bad seasons, it doesn't shift the real genuine dynamic that much. You kind of are who you are. The one team besides Clemson that I thought has, has had a pretty steady upward trajectory on the recruiting trail has been NC State. Dave Doran has been getting better talent onto that roster consistently than certainly than Tom O'Brien was doing. Uh, it's, I think, probably the most talented rosters coming in consistently to NC State that they've had in a while. And what you've seen with the, the guys that they're putting into the, to the league, they're doing a very good job of developing once they're there, too. That's the infrastructure for a consistently good program. So the question at NC State is, can you go from being consistently good to at least occasionally great? And I think that's kind of what you're getting at there. Is nine wins a good season at NC State? Heck yeah, it is. But is that the feeling that NC State wants to have year in and year out? I think most NC State fans would like to at least say, look, once every three to five years, we're knocking at the door on the division we're knocking at the door of an ACC title. We're competitive with the Clemsons and Florida States of the world during their great seasons. I think that's where NC State would like to be, and that's sort of the big question. Dave Doran has done a really good job of getting NC State to the precipice, but are they getting over that hump? Well, and the one thing I would say, it's funny, I think Doran this year has a chance to tweak the narrative a little bit because you're right, they have recruited so well over the last couple of years. There's a certain amount of stability there that you don't find in a lot of places in the league where there is uh, instability and uncertainty with coaching turnover and, and, and things along those lines. So he represents stability and a pretty good influx of talent. I almost wonder if this is the year where they pop out eight or nine wins, but he looks like a better coach simply because right. they have – not as much established talent. And this year they have a chance to be the quote-unquote surprise team that wins eight or nine games as opposed to the team that was pumped up all offseason and only wins eight or nine games. The margins here are so slim. It's literally one game here or there and yeah. a, and perceptions of what you go into the season with and all of a sudden you look like a different coach or a different program. But you're right. I mean, if I'm looking at the Atlantic just from the the, the perspective of the most stable program, the program that's been recruiting the best, I would pick NC State to finish second this year. I'm not as high on Syracuse as a lot of other people. I think Syracuse, I worry about all those close games and turnover luck that they had last year, and I I expect a little bit of a step back. I wouldn't be surprised if NC State finished second in this division. Yeah, and it's much like you said with Florida State. I mean, show me the team that they can't beat in the division outside of Clemson. Like, that's a team that can pretty easily go – five and one within their division and then pick up a win against Carolina on the other side. And, you know, you've got to pass pretty easily to eight or nine wins without necessarily saying they beat a great team. It's sort of a, you know, the, the old like Paul Johnson, Georgia tech nine win season of like, who'd you beat? I don't recognize any of these teams, but okay. You're here at nine wins, 10 wins. That's pretty good. And really, and to a certain degree, that's a, that's a big part of being really good at keeping your job. Make sure you beat the teams you're supposed to beat. Listen, just don't beat – how about not losing to Wake this year? How about that? How about <laughs> – yeah. I mean uh, – and Clawson's a really good coach too. And I, I, it's funny, like you could get into the minutia of who would you rather have, Clawson or Doran. And Clawson gets, I think, pumped up a lot. At least he does by me because I think he does a lot with, with not a lot there. Okay, listen, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to focus on the other side of the division and some new coaches and things along those lines, on the other side of the conference, excuse me, and some new coaches and things along those lines. Talking with David Hale from ESPN. We are doing the ACC preview, and we will be back right after this. And we're back with the ACC preview on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. David Hale, as is tradition now, on to do that ACC preview coming from ACC Media Days. If I said, okay, there are um, quick math off the top of my head, Louisville, Georgia Tech, 
Mac Brown at North Carolina, Manny Diaz at Miami. Those are the four new coaches. I'm not forgetting anybody. Those are the four new coaches in the ACC. If I said to you, which one will be best this year, which one will be best long-term, which one has the hardest job? Those are the three categories. Best long-term, best short-term, hardest job. David Hale, your answers. Best short-term is clearly Manny Diaz. I don't really think you can go in a different direction on that. Miami's talent on their roster is easily the second best in EACC at this point. They have a huge question mark at quarterback. And what what you saw last year with Miami was an elite defense, by and large, that was undermined by an offense that could not get out of its own way. And that largely started with a quarterback position. It was made worse by some very questionable handling of the quarterback position by the coaching staff that is not there anymore from the offensive side anyway. Uh, Manny Diaz certainly knows the program, knows the city. I think he's done an interesting job of rebuilding talent in areas they needed it. You know, when you watch the end of that bowl game against Wisconsin last year, I was I was in Dallas for the Cotton Bowl and watching that game on TV and thinking, my God, Miami might not make a bowl next year. That team looks terrible. I don't know how they address the future. And then, you know, eight weeks later, you're looking at Miami and you say, oh, they've all got all these transfers and they actually might be pretty good. And so I thought Manny Diaz did a really good job of addressing short-term needs with transfers. He's gotten, I think he's going to recruit really well. And it's still Miami. They've got talent. Uh, so yeah, short, um, it's a long answer to a, what I think should be an easy question and that I think Miami can be competitive for the division. Well, the yeah, I was going to say, right let, let me do a quick follow-up there. I probably was going to save this for the end, but you left a window open here. Would you pick Miami to win that division in a ridiculous <laughs> was, uh, division? Yeah. I was just talking with uh, my colleague, Andrea Adelson, last night about how stupid are we if we pick Miami? <laughs> because I think we're both <laughs> leaning that way, but also you kind of feel like you're just asking to get burned by Miami because don't we pick them every year to win the division and more years than not. In fact, all but one year, they go ahead and disappoint you. I I will say we could veer off into a much different conversation topic right now. I think there are good cases to be made for probably at least four teams in the coastal. But again, if you, if your, if your argument is you go with the team with the best quarterback, then you're going with Virginia. Your argument is, go with the team with the easiest schedule and the most talent, then you go with Miami. I think I'd lean towards Miami right now. Okay. Um, so the coach with the uh, – who will be best long-term. You, know, you, can say, you can say Manny, too, there, but you also then would have to pick a number two. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think if we're going to set aside Manny Diaz at Miami, I, I think I like what Scott Satterfield brings to Louisville. He is a program builder, first of all. I think he strictly is looking at this as a long-term project. I think Louisville's in it for the long term. We've seen Louisville have elite seasons before. I think it's an up-and-coming program in terms of financial investment from the administration. I think Satterfield's a really good recruiter. I think he's a good on-field coach. That's a program that has a lot of long-term upside. Now, the rebuilding job is going to be a big one because what Bobby Petrino left in his wake is just a very bad situation. I think they'll be better this year just because Bobby Petrino isn't there, just because the morale has improved. But on the flip side, there's just, especially on defense, it is just so talent deficient right now that it's going to require a lot. Now, the bigger job probably is at Georgia Tech because I don't know how I don't know what the template is for going from a true option offense to something else. We haven't seen that happen in a long time. Uh, and the, the, I was, I was been, been arguing with Georgia tech fans on, on Twitter the last few days because they think I'm too down on them, but as big of a question mark as Georgia tech's offense is the job, I think might be even bigger on defense where they were just awful last year and have virtually no returning experience. And because, by virtue of not having the option offense, they're going to be on the field a lot more on defense this year too. So Louisville and Georgia Tech are both huge jobs. I think I'd give the slight edge to Satterfield at Louisville as having 
a higher long-term ceiling. I do really like what Jeff Collins is trying to do at, at Georgia Tech, though, not just in the on-the-field stuff, but the branding of Georgia Tech is a place people want to be. The branding of Georgia Tech is Atlanta's school. I think that is a obvious thing that needed to happen a long time ago, and he's doing a really good job. This kind of reminds me a little bit of the first couple of years of Dino Babers at Syracuse. Like, let's talk about everything but the football program right now, like the on-field product. Let's talk about how good everything else about Georgia Tech is because we're going to lose some games in the field. But I want you to see how our vision of Georgia Tech looks for the next couple of years. It's what Dino Babers did, and it worked out really nicely for Syracuse. I think Jeff Collins can do something similar at, at Georgia Tech, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really high on both of those guys for the long term. I think they were both good fits and good coaches, especially Collins. Probably more optimistic about Collins than most uh, in that – uh, I, I could see him succeeding in a way Georgia Tech hasn't succeeded in a while. And listen, Paul Johnson won divisions and did a good job there. But I, I could see Collins reaching a, a different level at Georgia Tech by tapping into a, an area that is so fertile in recruiting right now and that they weren't necessarily tapping into before. As you, you don't have to beat Georgia on a bunch of players to be really good and to also be recruiting better than almost any of your competition in your division. That's the other thing that I think Georgia Tech and Collins has going for them. They could be the second best recruiting team in that division. Yeah. And when you know, I was funny because I was talking to Dabo about this the other day. And That's a nice name drop you, there. It's a yeah, solid name drop. You don't, you, yeah, me and Dabo were hanging the other day, and I said to him, like a Dabo. Uh, no, so but we were talking about how they very rarely are going head-to-head with South Carolina on a recruit because if you're a recruit, you either like the atmosphere of the in-city school in Columbia at South Carolina or you like the small college town atmosphere of Clemson. And very rarely is there a, an overlap in that Venn diagram. It's a similar thing in – Georgia with Georgia and Georgia Tech, you know, the, the, the recruit that wants to go to Georgia, that wants to live in a town like Athens, that wants to play at a place like Georgia is probably not interested in Georgia Tech for all those same reasons. But what Georgia Tech had not been embracing before was there's players who love being in the city, who want to be in Atlanta, who want like that, that urban vibe and who want to be a part of a program like Georgia Tech. That really hadn't been a part of the sales pitch for for Georgia Tech under Paul Johnson. And that's not a knock on him. Paul had his way of doing things, we all know, and you weren't supposed to question that. But Jeff Collins has really embraced the fact that, like, we're not trying to be better than Georgia. We're trying to be different than Georgia. And I think that's a really smart way of approaching it. And uh, also, like you, I agree that – I think Georgia Tech is going to be terrible this year. I think they have a really tough schedule. I, I think it's going to be a really tough year for them to make this transition. So short term, I think this could be a really rough year, and it might look a little pain. It might be a little painful and look a little ugly, but the long term should get better. And I, again, Louisville is just—I mean—they're starting from the studs at this point down um, <laughs> with Satterfield. So the, the one new coach we didn't mention is it was maybe in some ways the most interesting hire, and that is Mac Brown. There have already been signs on the recruiting trail that hey, this could work. I think what North Carolina is probably looking for more than anything is just some stability. I mean, you know, with Fedora, there was this extreme high and this extreme low. And I, I imagine you could look at Mac Brown and say, we can at least be good, like for a few years, like pretty good. And I actually think that there's a chance this year, let's just talk about short term. I think there's a chance this year of all, if unlike Georgia Tech and Louisville, where I think that you're bound to have a bad year this year. I could see a road to six wins uh, for yeah. North Carolina. It's, it's interesting. So let me ask you this. What was your take or your thought? Like what went through your head when you first heard North Carolina is firing Larry Fedora and hiring Mac Brown? Like what was your response to that immediately? Well, a little surprised because I had heard a lot that Fedora, they were going to give it another world with Fedora, that they weren't going to step up and pay that money. So there was that element to a, of it. And I was like a skeptical. I was like, really? Like you're going, I just, I don't like, you know, going back to spinning the hits. I, I think that <laughs> generally speaking, that's a bad move by most programs. And I also think it's a young man's game, and this is no knock to Mac or Les Miles or anybody else. It's a bit of a young man's game, and some new energy and new ideas is a good way to go. So I, I got to tell you, I was not – I thought it was a uninspired idea at the time, 
But I've like a lot of people, I think I've sort of warmed up to it as I've seen it play out and heard more about it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in talking to Bubba Cunningham about the hire, I almost feel like he's the same way. Like when the idea was first put out there, it was like, no, nah, this is this is kind of crazy. And then the more he thought about what are the actual needs for North Carolina, oh, well, you know, maybe this does work. And look, I, I'm with you in that at the end of the Texas tenure for Mac Brown, he felt outdated, right? And that's, I don't mean that in an ageist way. I just mean from a coaching perspective, what he was trying to do at Texas felt stale. And then he's out of coaching for five years, and it makes a very hard argument to say, guy was stale five years ago, and now we're going to hire him to rejuvenate a program. It doesn't add up. But when you look at the specific issues at North Carolina, you mentioned the issue of just stability. And I, I like Larry Fedora, and he got dealt some bad hands with the NCAA stuff. And it was just, it was always some off field controversy just looming over North Carolina's football program. And quite frankly, they're just not a program that recruits good enough consistently to overcome that. And I think it just, they needed a, as much as they needed more talent on the field, they needed a new marketing approach to North Carolina. They needed somebody that could come in and change the conversation about North Carolina. And I don't know anyone in college football who is better at doing that than Mac Brown. He comes in, he talks to boosters and gets them the right checks. He comes in and sits in a living room of a recruit and wins over the recruits, wins over mom and dad. He walks into the administrative offices and says, hey, we've been doing things this way. It's not working. We're going to do them this way now. And everybody says, okay, Mac, I like your, I like your style. I like your moxie. Right. That's just <laughs> how he is. And, and I think that more than anything is what UNC needed. And, and to your point, you start looking at the roster and you say, well, there's some, some things to like here. It's not great, but there's some things to like. And you start looking at the games last year and the number of games that they were in and competitive in, despite some just train wreck performances from especially a quarterback, you say, hey, all right, if they're just not terrible in some areas this year and they meet last year's level and everything else, I could be a six-win team. They weren't far off from being a six-win team last year. So I see it. I see the, I see the roadmap. I don't know if it's just July optimism, right? I mean, we're all, we're all optimistic and want to see the, the best possible scenario this time of year, and then you go out and get steamrolled in week one, and, and you're like, oh, wait, why did I think that again? That's possible for North Carolina, too. Yeah, but, their, their uh, front-loaded schedule is not conducive to a team that is going to be sort of searching between two redshirt freshmen and a true freshman right. for, for stability at quarterback. So it, 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 it could get a little ugly though, early. Yeah, but to your point, though, if you've got to have – a coach who's going to keep morale up through that. Again, Matt Brown seems like the right guy for that, right? So, uh, look, I don't, I didn't love the hire when it happened. I'm still far from sold, but like you, I see the merits of it a lot clearer than I did the day that it happened. Okay, so I'm going to compare the situation of two coaches because they've both been at their school for, well, Pat Narduzzi has been at, this is, I believe, your five at Pitt. And they've done some good things. They won a division last year, which was hard to remember, quite frankly. <laughs> that, 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 that pit team won a division. Let's, let's repeat ourselves there. That pit team won a division last year. And then you have Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech, who won a division in his first year. And now we're in year four and has sort of took a little step back last year. I think we're both wondering, like, not that either of these guys are on the hot seat, so to speak, but like, where are these programs? Are they going forward? Are they spinning their wheels? Are they possibly slipping back? Was last year an anomaly for Virginia Tech? So I'll take these two teams together because I'm not really sure what to make of either of these situations. And, and are, again, this seems to be pivotal years for these programs just to sort of tell me what the trajectory is. Yeah, I mean, Pitt sort of falls into that Boston College category a little bit of, like, can we get past this this roadblock of that 7-8 win corridor and actually be, you know, when you have a chance to hit a home run, you take your hack and you get it over the wall. Like, that's that's the question with Pitt. Because last year, I think you would argue, was, was 
you play for a you play for a division title. That's that's a great thing. And and I tell you, they played Clemson competitively for a good portion of that game, but you'd never felt at any point last year like, oh, this is a good team. I mean, they got train wrecked by Penn State and and Oklahoma State. So I don't. It, that that's like you want to say, okay, Pitt has a chance to be really good, but there's no history there recently to suggest it's going to happen. And there always seems to be – Pitt to me reminds me a little bit of like there's holes in the dam and everybody, as soon as you plug one, another one pops open. There's just – there's never a point in which you feel like you can sit back and say like, all right, the pieces are all in place here. It always feels like, all right, if we can put a Band-Aid here and a Band-Aid there, we might be okay. Um, you know, Virginia Tech, on the other hand, has history, certainly, and – I think has potential to be one of those teams that does put it all together. Last year was a weird season because when's the last time a Bud Foster defense looked like that? It was that people kind of wanted to pin a lot of this on Fuente, who's more of the offensive guy. It was the defense that was an absolute nightmare last year. And, and for a lot of reasons, they were super young across the board. That was a not deep defense. And they made a ton of just, fundamental mistakes, bad tackling, bad angles to balls. It was it was bad across the board on defense. You'd like to think they take a step forward this year, but then you look at the offseason they had, and I don't know that any team spent as much time with guys in the transfer portal as, as Virginia Tech did. It, it felt like there was this mass exodus, whether or not, I think if you go and look at each guy individually, you can say, well, Virginia Tech, really didn't need him. He wasn't going to be a major factor for them. It made sense for him to leave. I don't know that he left for a better place. Okay. But in the aggregate, you look at it and say, boy, it felt like everybody couldn't wait to get the heck out of Dodge. So I I would argue that that I think no coach needs to prove something more this year than Justin Fuente. I'm a fan. I think he's a really good coach. But the narrative there has a chance to go south very, very quickly if they're a 6-6 six and six team again this year. Yeah, I, I think if you can convince yourself that the the main problem was the defense, the defense will get better because Bud Foster will not have a defense that bad again, and the offense was actually pretty good this year, which is something you pointed out last year, which is something you pointed out on twi- Twitter. Ryan Wills did a nice job, and if they can finally get the running game actually going there, gosh, it's so frustrating. It feels like it's been forever since Virginia Tech has had a really good running back, and there was a point when it seemingly always had a really good running backs. But if you believe that simply Bud Foster will fix the defense – and that will go a long way towards fixing Virginia Tech. Then it's, you could easily see them, you know, challenging in the division and even winning a division that's sort of wide open. And that leaves us. I think the only one we have not talked about yet is the team that you could make a pretty good case could be the favorite in the division. <laughs> I don't think any of us feel good saying yeah. right. Well, right. I mean, listen, Virginia did a great job last year. Their bowl win, other than Clemson boat racing Alabama, there was no bowl game that was the result was more surprising than Virginia shutting out South Carolina. Not that South mm-hmm. Carolina was that big of a deal, but the way Virginia stumbled to the finish of its regular season and then to come out and just pound South Carolina was pretty startling. So that sort of set a narrative for this season. That, hey, maybe Virginia is the team to beat in the, uh, in the coastal, which has a chance to be, you know, wet and wild again, but you know, Broncos done a nice job there. They have the second best quarterback. I don't think there's any doubt about that. in Bryce Perkins, uh, tell me why Virginia shouldn't be the favorite. That it's Virginia. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. really, I think the biggest thing is that we all are wary of picking Virginia. Now, here's the obvious case for them. The last six years, the Coastal has had six different champions. Mm-hmm. The only team who hasn't done it is Virginia. They're on the clock. It has to happen this year. That's, that's Coastal chaos at its finest. But, look, I, I, first of all, I am a big believer in the team with the best quarterback is your safest bet most of the time and Bryce Perkins is a burgeoning star he is really really good there was only two quarterbacks in the country last year that threw for 2,000 yards and ran for 900 Kyler Murray was one of them Bryce Perkins was the other he's a really really good player I think the question is 
offensively, how many really good players does he have around him? They, the, the biggest red flag for me on, on Virginia is they had to work for everything they got last year. There was just so few big chunk plays, and it's hard to win. Northwestern's like one of the only other programs that you, can see, that you see that consistently wins despite not getting those big chunk plays routinely. And most of those Northwestern games kind of look like Virginia games. They're ugly and dirty, and you, know, you come out on the other end saying, wait, how did they win that game? That's Virginia too. I think if they can find a big play threat on offense, they're they're pretty good at, as you'd expect with Bronco and then all defense. They're pretty good on defense. They've got some guys. I mean, certainly Bryce Hall is going to be a first round draft pick. Uh, they got a linebacker by the name of Charles Snowden, who is a name people should know by the end of the year. He's going to be really really good. I think they've got a chance to be very good, but they need to find a big play threat somewhere. Somebody who really tests the defense other than Bryce Perkins. So that leaves us with this, and I, I agree with Virginia. I, I want to pick Virginia. I really think I think Bronco's a good coach. I really do. I've always thought like Bronco does a good job, and I, I, I see the trajectory. He's gotten a little better every year, so I do want to pick Virginia, but I'm hesitant for the reasons that you said. But now we've come to this point. It would be silly to ask you who you think is going to win the ACC because if it, it, it's clearly Clemson's division. They seem the Clemson's conference. They seem to be far out ahead of everybody, maybe more so than any other. In fact, not maybe. I think they are better than their conference competition mm-hmm. than any other team in the country. Who wins the Coastal and does uh, – no, just who wins the Coastal? I'm not even going to say does, he, does that team have any chance to beat Clemson. Who wins the Coastal? Uh, it's – I want to, my heart wants to say Virginia, my head says take Miami. I think I'm going with Miami. I think from talking to Manny Diaz, he is more optimistic that Nikosi Perry can become at least a pretty good quarterback. If they've got a pretty good quarterback, Miami has the rest of the pieces to be a very good team. Not Clemson level, but a very good team. I'll go with the team that has the most talent on the roster and hope they find an answer to their black hole at quarterback. I, it might be a really stupid way of doing it. I don't know. I will look stupid at the end of the year one way or another, so we'll just add this to the list. Okay, I'm going to rapid-fire you just a couple more. Does Trevor Lawrence win the Heisman? No, I think Dabo doesn't allow scores to get run up quite enough for it to happen, and he's not one of those dual-threat guys, which tends to, you know, if we look back at the recent history, it tends to be a lot of guys who also run. And I think Trevor's game, I think he'll be the best player in college football, but he won't win the Heisman. Give me two players who will be stars this year that we're not talking about as stars. Well, Charles Snowden from Virginia is one guy that, that uh, I think has a chance to be really, really good by the end of the year that not many people are, are talking about right now. Um, I'll tell you the guy that uh, Dabo is in love with at Clemson right now is linebacker Jamie Skalski. He was, took a red shirt at the beginning of last year but played in the playoffs. Uh, got some good reps in, but Dabo said nobody had a better offseason than him. Clemson desperately needs a linebacker to step up. He could be the guy that everybody is talking about as, as the next rising star, the next Ben Bolware type on Clemson's defense. Last one. Um, any coach get fired after this season in the ACC? Uh, I think somebody's going to go. I, I'm hesitant to pick which one it will be, but I think somebody's going to go. I'm in your camp that I think if 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 you got to put odds on who the most likely is it's probably Steve Adazio I think somebody will go I'm not guaranteeing it's him but I think somebody will go gotcha hey David Hale ESPN covers the ACC and college football all over the country but mostly in the ACC and is a you know the Dabo whisperer apparently thanks so much <laughs> thanks so I'm much you'll hang out with Dabo now so, exactly uh, yeah you and him are going to hang in Charlotte that's great hey thanks for doing this as always you always bring great information uh say hello to the everybody in the ACC to me, for, for me and uh, hopefully we cross pads at a press box uh, real soon I look forward to it thanks Ralph and now three and out First down. So after promising to cover every team with David Hale, I realized after I let him go to do his job of covering the ACC Media Day that we had not covered Duke. So here's my assessment of the Blue Devils for this season. Coach David Cutcliffe is breaking in a new starting quarterback to replace first-round pick Daniel Jones. But Quentin Harris is a senior with some game experience, and I think there's enough coming back 
on the offensive line and in the backfield so that the drop-off offensively won't necessarily be all that great. And frankly, it wasn't that great of an offense last year, even with Jones. Duke might still have the same problems it had last year, and that was a lack of really difference-making playmakers on the outside. The defense, on the other hand, might be as good as Cutcliffe has had in his time at Duke if they can figure out a way to get a little more pressure on the quarterback. The return of star cornerback Mark Gilbert from an injury means Duke should have one of the most reliable secondaries in the ACC that isn't uh, Clemson. Uh, I can make an argument that Duke will contend for a Coastal Division championship, but I can really make that argument for just about everybody outside of Georgia Tech and North Carolina. That division will most likely be won with five or six wins and a tiebreaker. Second down. I guess I need to pick a Coastal winner because I made David do it, and I will agree with him. I'll take Miami because of the combination of most talented roster And even more important, the schedule. The Canes play Virginia and Virginia Tech both at home. They get Louisville as a crossover opponent from the Atlantic Division. And they have their routine crossover opponent, Florida State. But we really don't know what the Knowles will be like this season. So with very little confidence, I'll pick the Canes to win the Coastal. Third down. While I'm not as high on Syracuse as the consensus coming into this season, I will be interested to see what the Orange do for a follow-up to last year's 10-win season and how that relates to the market for Coach Dino Babers. There's a lot of fear among Syracuse fans that Babers, with another big season, could get lured away by a bigger program. Even after last year's breakout, there was concern that Babers could be swiped up by another program, another big year by the Orange would make him a really hot commodity. And who knows, maybe a job like USC could be appealing to Dino Babers. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Just about anywhere you get your podcast. please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We are in preview season. Next week we will have the SEC. The week after that, the Big Ten. I believe the week after that will be Big 12 and then Pac-12. And we will sprinkle in at least one or two bonus episodes to do group of five conferences, maybe even a Heisman preview. So enjoy preview week and enjoy the podcast and please come back for more next week.